Programming Throwdown, episode 56, Robotics. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everybody. So uh, I have a new microphone. Super excited about that. Um, you sound amazing. Thread. Thank you. There, <laughs> there was a Reddit thread. Uh, it said, what uh, programming podcasts do you like uh, on Learn Programming, I think, subreddit. And a bunch of people said Programming Throwdown, which is awesome. Thank you guys so much. Um uh, and of course, you know, we, we had to look at all the comments and, uh, like any, uh, like anyone, your brain goes like straight to the negative comments and you kind of read those and a bunch of people said, Oh, Patrick sounds pretty good, but Jason sounds like he got his you know microphone in a garage sale, which I did. <laughs> so I actually did literally had my microphone, uh, from a, from a thrift shop. So, so I bought a new microphone. I followed Patrick's advice. Uh, and, and got the same microphone as, as, as he did. And uh, I'm really excited, really happy to uh, have some new equipment. I even got a pop filter, so look out. Oh, wait, now you've surpassed me. Oh, oh I thought you had a pop filter. No. Uh, okay, look out. Now it's like, uh, what's that called? Yeah, keep up with the Joneses. The next thing we need to do is uh, get those anechoic panels that we wrap around when we record so we don't get echoes and like room noise. And then we'll be professionals. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's the next step. Is that those uh, those like corrugated gray foam things? They have like little pyramids on them. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I think they're called anechoic. Hey, I, sounds good to me. Sounds awesome. <laughs> so on to news. Um, so yeah, this is pretty cool. I would have put it as my tool of the show, but I haven't used it yet. Um, it, it's still also a bit early, but I think it's a great idea. It's called MARP. Uh, Markdown Precision Writer. And the idea is it's this desktop app you download, um, and then you start writing Markdown, and it converts your Markdown into a PowerPoint presentation. And the reason why that is really cool is um, the PowerPoint presentation is is can be packaged as like a website, and in the Markdown you can have HTML. So in other words, like you could have a presentation where in the presentation uh, are some charts, that are dynamically generated. Like the presentation could make a web request to you know your server and pull back some charts. I mean, in a way that's kind of bad because yes. the data could change and, and, and not <laughs> represent what you wanted. But, or I mean, that's maybe not the best example, but you could have a link to Google Maps uh, and, and you actually have the, the Google Maps, you know, iframe and it's interactive. And so it's, it's pretty cool. Um, uh, you know, I'm gonna try it out. Uh, I've always been looking for a better, you know, uh, presentation software. It's kind of more lightweight and things like that. I'm that guy who just has all my presentations are just white background, black text. Um, so yeah, I'm going to try this out, and uh, if it's good, I might I might double dip and make it my tool of the show in the future. That's cheating. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what we do. We cheat. Also, I would hope there's a compiling step or whatever where it generates the PowerPoint and then it kind of freezes your data at that step. No? Oh, well, I think, I mean, you could definitely do that. Um, what you would do in that case is like you would, you would have, like you probably just take a screenshot of your data, you know what mm. I mean? Like, or yeah. something like that. Um, but it, it can, uh, it can generate this kind of website or it can export to PDF, which is, which is about as good as you can get. I mean, exporting to like PowerPoint would be really hard. So I don't expect that's going to happen anytime soon. But a PDF is pretty good. Okay. Well, go try it out and report back. That's right. The next story I have was making its rounds. The Apollo Guidance Computer source code was posted to GitHub. Um, apparently, this has actually been out in the public several times before. Uh, I've never seen it before. But this is some of the code written to control... Um, the Apollo mission for the guidance system. And it was written in a custom assembly that they made. But the most interesting things, I guess, are noticed the comments in the code that people wrote and probably assumed would not be written or at least would not be written, what is that, uh, 50 years later? Yeah. 51 years later. So things like temporary, I hope, I hope, I hope, like I hope that someone deletes this code one day. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. And there's just, you know, other kind of silly comments and quotes. And 
I guess things that at the time maybe even weren't that significant, but later uh, reading back, it's kind of interesting to see what people chose. Um, I guess if you were an author, people would look at this and say, what did they mean here? This is an allegory for what? Um, but it was probably the person just being goofy when they wrote it. Um, yeah, totally. But it's an interesting. I'm sorry, go what ahead. What is the weirdest piece of code you've ever seen or like funniest or... I mean, you've, we've both worked at big companies which have giant code bases, and sometimes you're just diving through the code. You see something completely bizarre. I mean, I think the only one, and I, I've probably talked about it before, is the first time I came across it, some bit of code that had a big comment and said, uh, voodoo black magic starts here. Do not alter unless you want everything to crash. <laughs> That's awesome. But other yeah, than that, I haven't seen very much funny code. The only one I saw is, uh, and I might have talked about this too in the past, but there was this comment that said, like, I don't know why, but return one here. And the next line was return zero. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. I fussed at Um, someone the other day. I I read a comment. No, no. It was like a log statement. And I was like, oh, this is not correct. Uh, You know, your code's not doing the right thing. But in my mind, I like had saw the log comment was wrong, and I never bothered to actually read what the code was doing. I just assumed the code was wrong as well. But actually, the code was correct, and they just like copy and paste errored the log comment. And I was like, "Oops, oh. should have read the code." But <laughs> nice. I, it was fair, I guess, from my standpoint that if you had the, like, why would I keep reading if the comments aren't right? Yeah, actually, that's something that uh, someone said to me. Um, that's really profound is is uh, unless you're working on a project by yourself, um, any code you write will be witnessed by at least twice as many people. In other words, you're going to read it again one day and someone else was going to read it again one day at least. And so write code as if you expect it you know, to be to be read many times. And I thought that was kind of like a profound statement. A lot of people still don't follow that, though. Yeah, no, I mean... We're all guilty of it at different times. So my news article is the Microsoft R client. Um, I haven't tried this. It looks pretty cool. Um, basically, uh, it, it's a it's an R front end, and uh, it works with big data. So um, there's uh, various kind of like R operators that you can run on the on the data to uh, you know do transformations, do dot product, do things like that. Um, but if you use this R library, um, let me see if I can find the name of the library. Um, but yeah, if you use this one library, then uh, it'll actually run on the cloud. So you could do a dot product of you know a billion, you know a billion sized vector with another billion sized vector, and it'll just distribute everything. Revo scale R. That's what it is. Yep, this the scale R technology and proprietary functions. So the deal is the the R client is open source. The base, like, you know, R uh, uh, distribution is obviously open source. But then if you call any of these scale R functions uh, that, are, that are owned by Microsoft, um, those are closed source. So if there's a bug in one of those, you know, you have to go chase down someone at Microsoft. But... Um, but yeah, it seems pretty cool. I mean, there's a lot of people who use R, a lot of statisticians, and uh, um, the idea that you know they could just kind of take what they've done and move it over to to big data is, is kind of a cool idea. I mean, obviously, you can't do the same things as you can do. Like, you don't have the full power that you do in R because um, you don't have the same kind of data locality, right? So, like, if you're going to break the data up into chunks, each chunk. Um, all can only see you know the data that that is it's assigned to that is assigned to it. Um, so you know you can't do everything, but you can do a lot of things. And uh, yeah, I thought this was pretty cool. I'm definitely going to be checking it out this week. Pokemon Go. Oh my gosh! I, I'm sorry. Know? I just don't even like. <laughs> so I'll tell you my experience with it. I uh, I downloaded it. Um, I fought the the you know test enemy i think i picked squirtle and i fought squirtle i defeated him and so i have you know the like very first introductory pokemon um and that's it (laughs) so i'm totally lacking um i definitely want to get into it but uh i haven't done it yet but it is insanely popular so you got a little bit further right no 
Oh, no. Okay. So I <laughs> w- kept telling myself I'm going to download it and try it out because I have fond memories of Pokemon when I when the original Red and Blue came out. And I was, I guess, I don't remember how old I must have been at the time, but a, a little on the older side. So as it's like on a f- Game Boy, so you're yes. probably like nine or something. But as like a first RPG, it was something that was very good for me, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Japanese RPGs weren't a or at least not among people I knew, weren't a big deal at that time. And Mm -hmm. uh, so I really enjoyed it. But then it wasn't really a cultural thing at that point. It wasn't until later that the cartoon show and stuff started to come out. But by that time, it was I was a little older, and it was like more something my younger brother and his friends were into. So then I I wanted to still play the game, but, uh, you know, I couldn't be into it. Uh, it's gotcha. th- so now that I'm an adult, right? Like you know, whatever. But but as a kid, I guess I made the decision not to be quite, quote unquote into it. But I still do remember all the Pokemon, and I was always better at the game than my brother because I was older. Uh, nice. But no, I keep telling myself I was going to download it, but then I got freaked out because I read some article that was saying that it uses your Google login and it the permissions it grants actually gives it access to like everything in your Google account, oh, not yeah, just like read email. Or, or read your email contacts or your email address, but like actually read all of your email. And they're saying it's most likely that they're not using it, but you know it could be a problem. If yeah, they if actually they, just pushed. Uh, uh, they they posted a news story saying that they fixed that. Mm. Um, okay, so I will download it. Yeah, I guess this. if there's an issue where like once you ask for something, you can't ask for less because that's kind of like giving the illusion that you aren't collecting it when you were. But given that this is already more popular than Twitter, <laughs> I think uh, like Google made an exception and like Google engineers like worked something out with them. Um, but yeah, that, that's so it's kind of gets to the article. The article um, is just I just cannot believe how popular and it only came out, what, a week ago, I think. Yeah. And it's just insanely popular. Like It's already more popular than Twitter. Uh, Nintendo stock went up seven billion dollars or something it's just insane um and uh, the article specifically talks about the augmented reality portion of it um so you didn't get to fight the first monster right no okay so so or i guess the first pokemon but it it does this thing where it um i don't even know how it works because they don't have 3d vision or anything it must be based on like passive you know, they uh, passive movement. They try to do some kind of stereo vision thing, but it isn't that structure from motion. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so it 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 figures out like again in our case, we were at an ice cream shop, and uh, uh, my wife and I were trying it out, and um, uh, like Squirtle like was just sitting on one of the benches in the ice cream shop, and it actually recognized like in three D sort of what that represented. And he was just chilling there, and uh, we just flicked a Pokemon ball on him and caught him. And it was just nice. amazing. So, yeah, I definitely... Uh, so, so so the article talks about how amazing augmented reality is and, and how it's the future and everything. I, I believe it. I think it's... it's I think it's interesting cool. that, from what I understand, it's pretty similar technology-wise to Ingress, the Niantic right. Labs game. But obviously, yeah. this has far and away eclipsed anything that ingress ever was yeah, as far as like the started, amount of people the cultural awareness of it yeah it started as an april fool's joke in google maps uh this is uh, the article talks about this um and i don't even remember exactly what the april fool i mean i remember seeing it at the time there's some april fool's joke that like juxtaposed maps with pokemon um i don't know if it replaced all the buildings or gyms i don't know but uh um but it was insanely popular, um, and then they realized that there's this huge, you know, uh, 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 Pokemon fan base that they could tap into. I will be downloading it. I will be playing it. I will probably cool. show my kids how awesome it is, and they will yeah, think it, I'm an amazing person for being able to capture Pokemon. <laughs> if we, if you don't see us, if we don't have an episode next month, you'll know why. We're, we're running around trying to catch Pokemon. I saw in articles the dark. devoted to selecting an external battery for your iphone because it drains so much battery oh no i guess the gps i have no idea but it was just funny that everyone's trying to cash in on the you know click baiting by putting pokemon go in your headline (laughs) that's awesome
um yeah so yeah next episode we will definitely we'll, we'll, we'll definitely talk about it more as we would have hopefully played it by then book of the show book of the show my book of the show is the u.s puzzle championship 2016 which just happened um you can go to this url if you uh if you click on the show notes and you can download the puzzles uh for free uh the the contest is over so you can't you can't uh uh you can't compete this year but uh um i did compete uh 2006 through 2010 and uh, i wasn't like particularly you know that good i think it was in like top 100 one year but like i uh, didn't get to go to the world championship or anything crazy like that but it's super fun um you don't have to be a programmer although um you can actually use the computer to kind of cheat um in the actual contest uh they give you two and a half hours and so you kind of have to sort of solve these logic puzzles by hand because uh i mean i guess you could cheat you could write the you could write a bunch of scaffolding code and in such a way where you could quickly churn out a program um but as far as i know nobody actually does that and if you did that and went to the world championship they don't let you use a computer so that would be kind of weird but uh but you can actually use a computer to solve the puzzles like brute force it or whatever it's kind of a fun exercise um you can also solve it yourself by using various kinds of like regression uh, um reductionist uh, methods and things like that and logic so what is an example um, question or what are the kinds yeah, of questions sure. that they ask so like sudoku be, puzzles like uh no it's well yeah kind of so so you could think of it as you could think of sudoku as like a logic puzzle um and so this is just sort of like an umbrella of which Sudoku, you know, could be one of the questions, right? Sure. Um, so there are basically variants on that theme. So there's, there's somewhere uh, you have a bunch of different weights and you have a bunch of different scales and you have to make all the scales balance, uh, but use all the weights, for example, right? Mm-hmm. They're all, they're all variations of MP hard problems, but, uh, but they're not like find an algorithm and then run it. It's just like solve an instance of the puzzle. Exactly. Right. Okay. So they give you some rule set in an instance of a puzzle, and then you're supposed to solve that instance of the puzzle. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Right. But they're not um, they're not puzzles you would have seen before. Right. That's right. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, the thing about it is like you can't brute force it, so you often have to find like some tricks to like radically reduce the search space. And, uh, and so if you have those tricks, then you could write the program pretty quickly. But if you have the trick, you don't need the program, um, unless you have to solve like a thousand of these. Right. Um, so that's really what it's all about is like trying to understand the patterns and try to understand like specifically like what things cannot happen so that you don't have to think about those things. And then once you've got it narrowed down, then you just try all the possibilities. It's a lot of fun. I mean, I did it for a long time. Uh, I wish I could say I was good at it. Um, I'm mean, definitely better than like an average person, but I'm not anywhere near as good as like these like world champions who are just crazy. Um, that was a humble crazy break. in a good way, but but uh, uh, yes, yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's true. But anyway, so so this is really fun. You guys should definitely try it out. Um, they uh, they also have solutions, um, so you can make sure you're on the right track and things like that. So definitely check it out. Sounds like homework. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, I'm trying to figure out, like... Uh, I think the reason why... Okay, I think the reason why it's fun is it's like Sudoku. If, if you like Sudoku and, you know, you're tired of doing kind of the same puzzle just with different numbers, then this you will, this will blow your mind. But I feel like a lot of the appeal of Sudoku... Sudoku, I don't know how to say it, is figuring out those tricks and then getting to apply them over and over. And for me, you know, it eventually becomes boring. Um, but you can kind of have your personal pattern or tricks, or you may even know tricks, but choose not to use them just because you like doing it more casually. I feel like it would be difficult. I, I'll, I'll try it out and see. I feel like yeah. learning a rule set for a single question and answer is less interesting to me. Yeah, I think it. it's... I feel like there's two types of kind of satisfaction and I don't, this is getting to like psychology or whatever, but there's, there's people who like get satisfaction from novelty. It's like, Oh, I saw this thing I didn't see before. Like, Oh, I went to Machu Picchu and I'm just happy because I did it. And then there's people who are like, I played this guitar song 
like more accurately than I did last time. And that makes me happy, right? And so the people who do Sudoku every week are in category two. And this is like category one. So it's like a different mm. kind of satisfaction. Yeah, I think I'm more in... Well, I just said category two, but I think I'm more category one. And I typically do like find enjoyment for the first little bit of something. So I guess that contradicts my statement. Yeah. Well, I should try this. It's I'll, I'll report back. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. So you're going to tell us about MARP and I'm going to tell us about this. That's right. We have homework. Someone will remind us. My book of the show is Son of the Black Sword, which is a fantasy book by Larry Correa. And I've had him as an author for books I've picked before. Oh, actually, I think I accidentally picked the same author two shows in a row because I believe oh, I that's had... that's fine as long as it's two different I books. believe I had Hard Magic, which is a different series right. that he writes that last time. Uh, so anyways, I'm obviously having some sort of thing with this author and <laughs> i listened to this book uh hard he's ma- not sponsoring the podcast at all no, i'm just kidding <laughs> yes yeah, so if you would like to contact us <laughs> yeah, right. and send us money um but i so i listened to son of the black sword uh on my community i really enjoyed it it's a fantasy book and sometimes uh traditional fantasy books get a little bit weird the first one because they're kind of doing a lot of world building but I felt this book struck a really good balance of word world building um, and also having an interesting story that had some progression from start to end. Um, obviously, it didn't like tie everything up because it's a series. Uh, and it actually didn't have as much of an end as many books do. But it did have a, you know, a clear trajectory. And I felt like there was on its own, you could just read this story. Oh, no. I'm trying to say you could read the story and be happy with where it is and not have to read the next one. But it it kind of, I don't want to spoil anything, but that's not completely right. true. So anyways, check it out if you're interested in fantasy. Um, the concepts I felt in it were pretty original to me. Sometimes I say that like, oh, this fantasy book had this idea that I, I thought was really cool. I, was, I never thought about it that way before. And someone tells me, oh, no, that's actually from some older book. Uh, and this author just kind of was rehashing it. So I won't say that this is original, but to me, some of the ideas that were in this book were kind of novel and I found them interesting. So that's Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And we'll have the link in the show notes or, uh, you know, we are sponsored by Audible. And if you go to audibletrial.com slash programming throwdown, you can get a free one month subscription to Audible, which means you can download any books. You could download Son of the Black Sword or there's many, many books on there. We've a whole host of books that we've recommended or I guess mostly I've recommended Jason's book isn't on Audible U.S. Puzzle <laughs> right. Championship 2016. Although I did, uh, uh, I am halfway through Red Shirt. Oh, yes. One about the Star, Trek. the Star Trek thing. Yeah, that that is an awesome book. Oh, you're enjoying it. Good. Yeah, it's very fun. Good. Yep. Um, yeah, it's it actually the, the, I'm glad you didn't spoil it when you gave your review because. Um, well, don't spoil totally, it now. Yeah, yeah, I know. But I was totally not expecting, um, th- you know, what happened. And uh it was it was really you know really awesome. I mean, it's like it, I'm really into it now. Okay, yeah, I, it's really hard to do these because I feel a lot of a book should be a surprise, and I actually try to read as little as possible about the books, just enough to kind of know I'd be interested in before listening or reading them. Uh, and so I, try, so I always feel awkward giving the review because I don't want to say too much. Like I didn't say yeah, anything specific about Son of the Black Sword. You have no idea what it's about, other than there's probably a black sword. And somebody who's a son. Um, But yeah, I just don't want to give any of the surprise away because that's like a lot of the awesomeness of reading a book. Yeah, totally. So we're also um, on Patreon. Um, So you can go to patreon.com slash programming throwdown. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, And uh, and that's where, uh, you know, if you uh, feel inclined to like give a donation each episode, uh, we also post um you know mp3s on patreon they have a pretty high bandwidth connection and all of that um so yeah patreon and uh, audible check it out yeah and thank you to all of you who have been doing both of those things we really appreciate it yeah absolutely um time for tool of the show my tool of the show uh given the whole theme of sort of robotics and kind of more this is a little bit of a stretch but it was a good idea (laughs) yeah my tool of the show is uh my i'm not gonna say this right Evoluent, Evoluent vert- vertical mouse. And so I've had actually this 
Um, since actually, since since you and I met, I've had one of these mice for work. I don't have one at home because it, this would be useless for gaming. But uh, but if you uh, you know sit at a computer doing programming for you know uh, for a living um, or just for a lot a lot of hours. Um, this mouse is awesome. It's a vertical mouse, and so it's very hard to describe. Uh, maybe the no, I don't think it is. It's if it you is. put your hand straight out. Normally, you hold the mouse with your palm towards the desk. Instead, right. you hold it with your palm facing your keyboard, if you're right-handed or left-handed, with your palm facing your keyboard, and then you make like a pincher motion with your thumb. Yeah, like imagine if you're going to shake someone's hand. Oh, that's there you kind go. Of, yeah. That's kind of like what your hand is going to look like or feel like all day. And it's really, you know, it's one of these things like you might say, well, who cares, right? But I actually noticed when uh, uh, when I had a right, when I switched to a regular mouse after about a month, I could kind of feel like the tension in the shoulder and things like that. And so this is, I think the, the and I'm not like a... Ergonomics. Um, ergonomics, you know, expert or anything. But what they say is, I guess, when you tilt your hand, uh, you know, palm down, you're cross the two bones in your forearm, and uh, and that causes stress, uh, especially if you do it for for many hours. So uh, so yeah, the the Evoluent vertical mouse. It doesn't have to be that one. That just happens to be the one I've always used. I'm sure any vertical mouse would be great. But uh, yeah, yeah, check it out. There's a whole host of ergonomic solutions. Weirdly, I did have one of these mice, and it was still bothering me a little. And so the thing that worked for me was even just using a normal mouse, but using it with my left hand, even though I'm right handed. Oh, I have a friend who, uh, a coworker who sits next to me who does that. He has, he actually alternates. So I do, I do somewhat as well. Yeah. yeah. I do have two mice plugged into my computer actually, but um, I find for some weird reason, I guess because I do a lot of other tasks with my right arm, that using my left arm for my mouse works really well for me. But then people fuss at me because most people who use their mice with their left hand swap the buttons. So you, oh, I'm going to get this wrong. Normally to right click, it's the you know right button, but you make it the outside. Your index, your index finger should be the main click, right? But I don't. I leave it. That is too confusing to me. Oh, so I I use I leave it in the normal orientation. So I use my uh, middle finger to do the main clicking. Oh wow! It's so I'm weird. You must be really uh, adept at uh, navigating traffic. (laughs) Like your middle finger is just ready to go. I didn't even know what you were saying. <laughs> I was trying to figure out the right way to say it. All right, moving on. That was not the right way to say that. <laughs> moving on. Awkward joke. Um, my tool of the show is a 3D printer. I'm trying to be in theme as well. If you get into hobby robotics, you'll definitely uh, want to have a 3D printer. or It won't hurt to have one. Um, and I got one. We talked about 3D printers a couple times on the show. Yep. And I don't know if I've talked about mine, but um, I did end up building one from a kit. It's kind of a low-cost one, a, a version of one of the RepRaps, uh, RepRap Prussia i3, or Prusa i3. I don't actually know how you say that. Um, and it's a, it's a variant of that. I'm enjoying it. It showed me a lot about that kind of stuff. I've had a good time. I printed a lot of things, some functional, some playful, and then kind of painted them. If you have little kids, it's kind of cool because they think anything you print, they think they call it the robot. So like, daddy, I want to go downstairs and watch the robot. Uh, And they just watch it kind of like zig and zag around. Um, But then you do kind of get into these stages or I have a couple times where it requires a lot of, or because mine's a low end one, I guess, or budget one. But I think the high end ones do need this occasionally too. It needs like a lot of tuning to keep it in it in a good state. And so sometimes it gets like out of calibration or whatever. And you spend several like sessions where you kind of just want to go down and print something, but it's not working and you're trying to like fix it. So you spend a fair amount of time doing that. Gotcha. Do you have one that you recommend? Because I've always wanted one. Um, I mean, so the one I have has a specific set of problems that I felt were okay within my wheelhouse for me to save some money. Um, So mine is the Folger Tech. 2020 i3 which means that uses aluminum extrusion 20 millimeters by 20 millimeters uh, and it's the prussia i3 variant so it's relatively cheap um but the quality control isn't great and the instructions although adequate you need to have be used to building kits of things specifically hardware things before or you'll probably be very confused so like how to get it into kind of orthogonal 
conditions where all of the various pieces are aligned properly takes a fair bit of kind of knowing how that should work to know what to loosen and what to tighten and adjust and, oh, yeah. and have it help you. I can't even build Ikea furniture. Oh, so. yeah, then you do not want this one. <laughs> okay. Um so then there are ones that are, you know, moving up the price scale, but like a lot of people recommend the Lulzbot Taz. Um, I've not used, I think they're at Taz 6 now, um, but that one seems pretty good. You, know, you can look, there's a lot of communities on Reddit. Um, the RepRap community is, is pretty big. And there's some, a lot of clones from China and elsewhere that are varying levels of sophistication and goodness or badness. And it all depends on what you want to do with it and how hands-off or tinkering you want to be with it. Gotcha. But in yeah, my I mean, mind, half the fun is printing the upgrades for the machine. Like I've upgraded a lot of things on my machine. And that's, I derive enjoyment from that. Oh, I see. Like wh- what's an example of an upgrade you'd print? Sure. So, oh, this is going to get really detailed and hard to explain in words. But the there's the, in this style, the bed moves forward and backwards, but not left or right or up and down. So the okay. piece of glass or PCB, you know, that you're printing on moves only forward and backwards. Then there's a set of screws that hang down from the top of the machine that uh, the actual print head rides on and moves up and down and then another motor to move it left and right. So that assembly can slide up and down on these screws. Um, But the screws they ship with it are this like cheap, same thing you would use for like low end bolts. They're not actually what you would typically use for a control system like that a high quality screw. And so I switched out those screws to the more high quality screws. They're called lead screws. Um, so that as it moves up, it does it more precisely, which means the prints are more even in each layer. And so you Wait, get a little less you didn't, noise. You didn't 3D print the screw, right? So no, so you buy the screw, but then how the screw connects to the side holder parts. Oh, I don't have the technical description, but like that needs to be re 3D printed because it's, it uses a different nut than the, the, the original one. And so gotcha. you 3D print that. I 3D printed like little feet that go under the bottom so that when it vibrates, it doesn't vibrate the table. So it, it's quieter. Um, this is this sounds so fun. 3D like printed like little, little holders this. to like, you know, route the cables. Um, yeah, just like all sorts of little things. Yeah, I mean, I've had so many like... Uh things I've wanted to 3D print, but I don't have, I actually, uh, I have access to a 3D printer now, but, uh, but for a while I didn't have access to a 3D printer. And even like, uh, you know, the, uh, Thomas, the train, like wooden train yes. tracks. Yeah. Like I, I, if I had a 3D printer, I mean, oh my gosh, like, <laughs> like it would be so epic. Yeah. So I did print, like there's a set of low polygon count, uh, Pokemon models that my kids love. So I've printed them I don't even know how many now, like little Bulbasaurs and Squirtles and Charmanders. Uh, So they love those and theme with the Pokemon Go. Um, And like I printed a lightsaber. So it's like the lightsaber hilt or whatever and a bunch of pieces. That was pretty cool. So I've printed a lot of things that kind of just work pretty seamlessly. And then I'm trying to get into kind of designing my own parts for various ideas that I have. So that's that goes a little slower, though. Very cool. All right. Talking about robotics robotics so this will be a little different in the structure of how we talk about it because i didn't we could talk about the history of robotics but eh, i don't know Um, yeah i mean that's it's probably enormous and not that relevant so the reason why i find robotics interesting um and the little bit of work i've done with it from the hobbyist and and not is that it's a a lot of systems that need to work together to kind of have a robot and so we're going to kind of go through each of the or some of the various subsystems that make up a robot because a robot is different than just an application where it's a binary running on a computer. Um, it is often many different applications. They need to do a variety of different things. And to be a roboticist, I guess, uh, you often have to know a huge spectrum of different areas of expertise um, because they all are needed for having a successful robot. So the, okay. f- the first one that I, I guess everyone kind of thinks about, and I'm not going to talk about, since this is programming throwdown, we're going to talk about this as it applies to software. So we're not going to talk about things like mechanical design of the robot, but right. that is also a very interesting topic. Um, so the first one is the things that move or control or interact with the world 
and the controls for them. So these are, you know, you could think of um, what moves the robot. So most robots we think of move around the world in some mm -hmm. way. So maybe it's wheels that are attached to motors and those motors spin the wheels and move the robot forward. Or you have, you know, a robot arm and it has actuators, little motors at each, each joint. Um, it could be, I'm trying to think of other things, uh, tr uh, treads for a um, tr uh, tank style robot. Um, there's all sorts of different things about how do you move a robot. Um, and then there's things about manipulating the world. Like I have a little claw and I want to grasp the world or I want to, um, I, I'm trying to think like things where you want to interact with something physically in your world versus just moving through it. Um, and the, a lot of these have that in common. They're combined with what we're going to talk about next sensors, but you have some sort of motor or a electromechanical muscle of some sort that's moving and you need to control that. And so there's software that needs to be written to say, if I want to move precisely from, uh, you know, one millimeter forward, how do we do that? And there's kind of two approaches there. And there's a lot of software around this, but one is uh, open loop. That's the easiest. So that is, I know that if I have a stepper motor, which each time I kind of uh, move the stepper motor forward, it moves a set number of degrees. So like 1.7 degrees forward. Um, then so I, this is like, I guess if you had a, like a tire yeah, and, and you know that if you rotate the tire 360 degrees, you know, the radius of the tire, you can kind of guess pretty accurately how far you're going to go. So that's a great example. So if you're kind of like roll forward on a tire, you wouldn't necessarily do that closed loop because there's a big problem, which is as you roll forward, the tire probably slips a little. And so at the end, you don't exactly know how far forward you went. So even if you have oh. an encoder on the wheel to see physically how much did the wheel move, you aren't able to measure like via the wheel itself, you aren't able to measure if it slipped at all. Okay. And so that, that would be kind of something you would do open loop most often. You would just kind of drive it and you would rely on some other sensor to tell you how far you went. But then you have closed loop. So closed loop is like a servo. So if you've ever used a servo of any sort before, you kind of tell it to go to a specific angle. Um, so like I want to go to angle 90 and I want to go to angle 95. And it has circuitry inside of it that tries to keep it at that angle. So even if you go push on it, it'll try to go back to the set position. But there is software in a lot of these systems that does that. It's called closed loop. And this is where you get into stuff if you've ever heard um, PID, which is like proportional integral differential or derivative control. So this is a way of keeping something at a set level. And this gets into control theory. And in closed loop, you're sending out a control signal for something to happen. And then you're measuring what happens back. And you could have all sorts of problems where it, you don't want to, but you're trying to go for a certain position and you overshoot it and then you need to move back. And there's all sorts of math around how do you try to prevent overshoot? How do you try to prevent that like over time it stays very close to it? Um, and so Does this involve like calculating the gradient or something and like moving... Uh, moving like step like adaptive gradient or something yeah so this is like so there's different ways so there's like the, like i said the pid loop uh other things you'll hear about sort of in this arena are like common filters um start to come in can yeah, come right. into this I, this isn't meant we will probably later go into more topics this is kind of giving you google words that you can go search or maybe context if you've heard some of these words before but this would be you know closed loop is trying to say how do i have a desired outcome and then how do i make sure i achieve that outcome in a good manner gotcha that makes sense so closed loop has to be something kind of simple like like uh turning a rudder on a on a boat or yeah something holding like a that. rudder at a specific position on the boat yeah or holding a robot arm at a specific level or even things like you know we were talking about before like a 3d printer so my 3d printer has like the nozzle that heats up the plastic you want to hold it at a very specific temperature but that's not as simple as just setting an amount of current to flow through because as the room temperature changes, as plastic flows out, like cold plastic comes in and then hot plastic goes out, the temperature moves around a lot. And ideally, you would like it to be very stable at a very specific temperature. And so there's a control loop where somebody in software is measuring from a thermometer the temperature of the piece of metal that is the nozzle and controlling the heater that heats up that piece of metal. 
And so there's actually a control loop running there to try to keep at a very stable temperature. Okay, that makes sense. So do you have you? It sounds like with well with closed loop you just like someone else has kind of done it for you, but with open loop the kind of onus is on you. Like maybe you have a camera or something, and you're the one who has to say I'm really close to the wall right now or something like that. Yeah. So I mean, open loop. So these are just yeah, it's kind of separate from actuators. How do you control something? How do you move? And then these are various ways when you move things, kind of how are they moved, whether you do them in open loop or in a closed loop. Um, so gotcha. so for things like sensors, there's a whole, a whole bunch of questions. So you could use a sensor to try to, you'll hear people say, close the loop. So I moved, you know, I told my robot wheels to move forward. And we talked before about structure from motion. Like I look at the camera and try to guess how far forward did I move to quote unquote, close the loop. So that even though oh, I, I didn't I measure anything about the motor, I looked at the world around me and say the world shifted forward a foot. Therefore, like I know what I just did to the motor. If I do that again, I will most likely move forward one foot again. Oh, is that where the phrase close the loop came from? Uh, I, they're yes. related. <laughs> they're related. I don't know which one came first. That's inter- Well, it's interesting. I never thought about... Yeah, you know, every time I've said close the loop, it's like, you know, talking to somebody or something. Yeah, so when like, you close like, the loop but, with a human, you did something and then something happened and closing the loop means like getting feedback back so you know what to change next time. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. So, then, so the camera the camera gives you the feedback. Could, yep. That yeah, potentially could give you the feedback that then turns into more actions for the wheels that then changes the camera and so now you have a closed loop. And so, cool. so there's things like, you know, for sensors themselves, we'll talk about a second, but like you have a, often you'll have a camera and you want to point the camera at a specific direction. Um, but you're, if you think about, oh, like, you know, uh, quadcopters are really popular now, these helicopters with four blades, um, but they kind of move and bounce around in the air. It would be ideal for some of them if you held the camera pointing at a very specific thing. And so... How do you do that? You have a set of motors that are able to move the camera, but they need to monitor what the quadcopter is doing and kind of cancel that motion out. Um, and so that's a closed loop system, that gimbal system for trying to control that camera. And that is so that the sensor, the camera itself, gets a good image. Uh, and so then there's a lot of work associated with sensors themselves. How? So we talked about a lot of things there for sensors, but someone still has to write the code to talk to these pieces of hardware and like read. Ultimately, they're probably producing some electrical signal or the hardware itself is producing bytes that need to be read. But you need to interact with those pieces of hardware and make it into something that the rest of the system understands. So for a camera, that would be reading out a single frame off the camera. For an accelerometer, it would be you know, configuring the range of sensitivity for the accelerometer and then reading out the current acceleration that you're experiencing. Um, So there's a lot of work around how do you do that for the sensors? How do you read it in? How do you put it in a format that makes sense for the rest of your system? And then how do you do it at like a set interval quickly enough so that you're not, sometimes I read it a little early and sometimes I read it a little late because that can cause problems with some of the stuff we'll talk later but a lot of things in a robotic system are assumed to be running at a very specific rate so this is similar to like in a video game you want it to run at whatever 60 frames per second and so you want everything to kind of always be at that and if it if you had 60 frames in a second but you had all 60 right at the beginning of the second it would look very weird so you actually want 60 evenly spaced frames and so that's called the jitter how much time, the time between frames, how often it does. And so when you're reading sensors, you're trying to kind of reduce jitter, make sure that the you're reading it at the set rate. And there's a lot of work about that as well. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, yeah, a big part of robotics too is, is planning and autonomy. So, so one is um, autonomy. So one is like uh, teleoperates. This would be like, I guess, using a joystick and, you know, just when you press a trigger down, the helicopter blades turn faster or something like that. Um, there's also just purely autonomous where you give it kind of very high level instructions and uh, someone's built all sorts of layers of, of I guess, machine learning and, and different kind of planning systems. So, you know, in other words, like the the very top layer could say, you know, fly 
to this spot on a map and then fly back and land. Um, and so at that level, you're, um, if you're doing any sort of machine learning there, uh, you're probably not doing any machine learning there. It's probably a human putting in certain commands based on sort of changes that they want to make in the world or things that they want to see in the world. Um, so that's sort of like human level decision making. Um, then when you go back, when you kind of go down in the stack, it would be things like there's usually some kind of uh, a state machine where it says, okay, am I landing? Am I taking off? Am I flying to a destination? Am I, you know, you know, trying to take a picture or something? I'm thinking of drones here, right? Um, <clears throat> and at the bottom level are things like, uh, are, are kind of like a system for each of those states. Like, um, you know, the drone is taking off. Here's sort of a bunch of logic to kind of handle the takeoff scenario and ditto for all the other kind of scenarios. Yeah, I think each of the different, if you think about subsystems in, for instance, like a, you know, a, a quadcopter, you have something that's trying to keep the helicopter afloat, <laughs> like don't crash. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you have something else trying to say, you know, move forward. So there's an interaction between like go forward and do it stably. Like you don't want it, you know, kind of going crazy. You want it to go forward smoothly um, and deal with any kind of disturbances along that. And then, as you said, there's something more, which is like, I'm trying to get from point A to point B. And so like, what's the best path to get there? Um, Another part of it is like supervised learning. And so what this is, is um, like, what's a good example um, I mean, I, I guess oh, so- this reason, I should have done this as a tool of the show. I've been doing the Udacity uh, machine learning class with Sebastian oh, nice. Thrun. The self-driving car one? Yeah, uh, yes. And he talks in there. So this is actually, I, I definitely recommend that. We've, I've never really sat down and did a massively online class, but I finally did, and I did it with this one. And I, I cheated. I didn't really do the homework. I just like I just been watching all the videos. How are you going to do the puzzle contest if you can't even do the Udacity homework? Uh, so, but I've been watching and I found it, uh, you know, really a good, well put together series. Um, and so, if you're interested in robotics, I would definitely recommend it. And so, the example they use there in supervised learning is that when you're driving an autonomous car, you want, for instance, to decide if the terrain you're currently driving on necessitates that you drive fast or slow. And so over time, they collected a bunch of data when they were driving a car and looked at things like the accelerometer for how bumpy the road was. And I forget they used something else as an example. Uh, Oh, the current gradient, like whether it was flat or steep or very steep. And so they recorded these various things while they were driving and produced a data set where the label was either they were driving fast or driving slow. And so supervised learning would be saying giving that to a computer and then saying, hey, next time I give you a current bumpiness and gradient, I want you to tell me if I should drive fast or slow. But I give right. it a bunch of examples of what I did to supervise it and how to make that prediction. Right. And actually, they did the same thing for AlphaGo, the world champion Go player. Um, they actually, you because know, if you imagine like, in Go, there could be actually many different ways to play really good Go. And trying to find all of them or trying to find one of them could be could be really, really hard. Uh, so what they did is they said, let's take all of the games played by all of the world champions. And in the beginning, when, they're, when they just start learning, instead of trying to play, have the computer play Go against itself and get better that way, which is what they do later. But in the beginning, they just say, look, computer, this was a game played by two experts. Um, The next time you see games like this, I want you to play as good as these experts do. So like, in other words, take, take these, this bank of games played by these experts and try to generalize it. And so this changes the objective function from, you know, play the best possible game of Go to just do what these experts do, which is much, much easier. And then that was sort of a scaffold. Once they have that, then the system is kind of already tuned to a certain spot of the search space. Um, so in other words, like to, to, to illustrate, like if all the experts in Go for some reason always place the first stone on the bottom left, 
for some reason, like it's just a thing, then you can learn all sorts of cool strategies where you don't do that, but it's not going to help, especially if you're going second. So, so uh, you might as well learn what the experts do and then optimize after that. And so the self-driving car is the same way. You, know, you can't just, you know, train a model and then have a self-driving car, like go on version zero of the model, just drive off a cliff, like, you know, it'd be a disaster. So instead you, you build this supervised model and then you can even while you're driving, you know, see, oh, what would the model do? If, and if you're going 45 and the model says I would go 130 degrees, <laughs> 130 miles an hour, then you know something's like really busted. Yeah. And, and I think interesting, you talked about like levels, you know, first it's kind of remote control, then it, you kind of move up. And if you think about like autonomous cars as an example, even though the end result, you want a fully autonomous car where you just say, I want to go to the grocery store and it just takes you there. You kind of, as you're building up that system, you take it through various levels where initially you just want to test that you can kind of tell the car what to do and it does it. Then eventually you're kind of monitoring what it does, like allow it to do some stuff. So that would be like cruise control, like set the car on cruise control and it knows to just try to keep that speed. Then, you know, you're giving it a task, go the speed and stay in a lane. Then you're going like, okay, now I want you to figure out how to change lanes on your own. And then a step past that, it's like, I don't care how you do it. You pick the roads, you pick the lanes, you pick the speed. I just want to go from here to here. And you kind of take it up through that level of sophistication. Right. Yep. Um, And that's something that we still haven't done with a lot of systems. Like we don't have a lot of fully autonomous systems. Even things like the drones you hear about being used for war aren't autonomous. And it's scary what will happen when they finally do go fully autonomous. But you don't tell them protect this area or you know go take this action they have some combination of humans telling them you know fly this way and like you know get home right but like they aren't sitting in an area looking for something to do we don't have robots that yet or at least not commonplace where a robot kind of replaces a mall cop and there's just a robot you know sitting in the mall watching for bad behavior and then like setting off a siren if it sees someone doing something bad um, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's this saying, uh, uh, there's this sort of like thought experiment, you know, if, if, if a robot, if you have a robot made and the kids are like really hungry, what's to stop the robot made from like microwaving the cat? <laughs> it's like, it's like you need like all of those kind of really higher level things that involve sort of the fact that like, you know, different, different, like the fact that like uh, you know ants like have a different like level of uh, uh, feelings as as a as a cat, and so you could step on an ant, you can't step on a cat. Like these these things, or you can't kill a cat. I guess these things are are like incredibly entrenched in like our psychology and like very difficult. And we haven't even like begun to so it's to, to to sort of like crack um, these problems. So yeah, as Patrick said, I mean, cause you hear so much about, Oh, you know, Skynet is coming, things like that. And it's, it's not like we're so far away from that. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and so that's where the machine learning I think comes in is we talked first about controls and motors. And then we talked about sensors. I mean, these things are highly deterministic and highly straightforward part of robotics. Um, and once you have them working, you can kind of have a remote controlled robot, I guess, but the machine learning comes in when you start trying to say things which are a little more non-deterministic, there are many ways to accomplish it. And what Jason is indicating is exactly right. Just because we have something which can do a relatively mundane task doesn't mean we're suddenly close to something that knows how to do all tasks. Yeah, exactly. Or even even something that is self-aware, like that knows that it's doing a task and, and sort of what that means, right? So then another something to consider with robotics is... Often you have you may have many processors for a large robot in the system, all responsible for doing different things. Like one's responsible for collecting all the camera data. One's responsible for collecting the sensor data. Another is responsible for route planning. Um, and so all of these systems have to communicate with each other. And there needs to be, often they may not even be the same kinds of processors. Like some may be very small, low-cost processors. Some may be high-end, fancy very good processors, and you need a common way for them to interact and communicate with each other. So that's something that as a roboticist, you have to work on and debug. And then also sometimes 
you need a communication off of the robot. So how do you keep a log of what's happening? You call that telemetry. What if you want to talk to another robot and the two robots should coordinate to do a task? Now you need a distributed algorithm for deciding like what to do with multiple robots. And this is where you get things like swarm uh, robots and swarm intelligence. And that's another interesting exploration area of robotics. Yeah, I've seen a lot of... Uh, there's this uh, this paper that came out a long time. It was called Boyd's. And uh, the whole idea was uh, they studied a bunch of different bird... Uh, you know, they, this person was fascinated with how birds fly in like a V or different shapes um, that are very geometric. Um, and how difficult that must be from within the frame of reference of one of the birds to sort of understand how to orient itself. And uh, what it found is... If you have a few simple rules, um, you can actually get that kind of that flocking kind of uh, effect. I mean, the rules are very simple, like, uh, you know, get a little bit away from the birds next to me, but not too much away. It was, it was kind of like a like a force based, like a graph uh, force based system. And uh, uh, so, so I think that uh, that's a big part of it is understanding, like when you have many different robots um, sort of how does that complex adaptive system work? And there's a lot of really interesting research there. Yeah, so like emergent behavior and... Yeah, right. Yeah. there's That's a huge area of research and, you know, a very interesting thing to look at and understand. Yep. Another part of this is HCI, human, uh, human-computer interaction. And I think it's also called human-machine interaction. And uh, this is just uh, about sort of how you... Uh, interact with with the machines around you. It's very the name is very straightforward. But you know, for example, um, you know the touchscreen uh, is kind of one of these things that's gone in and out of vogue. I mean, I remember when there were uh, touchscreen laptops, and then people realized, uh, or you know, a lot of people realized it doesn't really make sense. And then uh, uh, then there was the Newton, where it was a phone like you know form factor, but it had a stylus. And, uh, and now we have, we have the iPhone, you know, style, right? And so these are all just advances in HCI and, uh, they can cause like radically different user behavior. Like if I have to pull out a stylus, then that adds friction to the experience. I might not do something quick, like send a text message or check my email or something. And so it's just hugely important and, and, uh, um, and it's kind of, uh, like that kind of gets right on the border of robotics because it involves a, a sensor and, and uh, uh, it involves kind of the outside world. <laughs> yeah, and I think the difference with robots than just like how do humans interact with machines is also robots move about in our world. It sounds a little weird, I guess, but and humans perceive them out in the environment. And so you need to understand what are you trying? How do you want people to behave around the robot? Do you want them to ignore it? Do you want them to, you know, be friends with it? Right. These are questions that are still like very large open research projects. Um, but things like the self-driving car, like what happens when you get into it and when you're sitting in it, like how does it make you feel? Um, that sounds really weird, but ultimately if you don't feel safe because of the way it's driving, even if the way it's driving is better than the way humans drive, you're probably going to be really freaked out. So yeah, Even if Elon Musk tells you everything's going to be okay. Yeah, so maybe <laughs> they need like a little Elon Musk head to come up and say, yeah, welcome yeah, to our head. car. Right, but these are all things you have to think through if you have a machine out in the world. And, and then there was that movie about it, but I don't remember where the assistant on your phone and people kind of develop a bond with it and call it by name and... Instead of saying it, they say he or she. Is it iRobot? Is that right? No, iRobot is a different one. Oh, okay. I know what movie you're talking about, but I also forgot. The I movie. didn't watch it. But but yeah, basically, this is a real thing that if people project emotions onto these or will, how, how what, what are you wanting to evoke? Um, and so this is things like when you call into a phone line for customer service, right? That They call that a... Um, a robot i didn't actually think about that until just now but like i guess a phone answering robot but they want you to efficiently get to where you are um and but they need you to behave in a certain way to kind of get that so they have to interact with you very specifically um and yeah. it's the same thing goes for r robots that how should you put little eyes on the robot or not 
what like people will react differently depending on what you do. So yeah, actually, I saw something pretty awesome in the city, in San Francisco, uh, downtown San Francisco. I saw on a light pole uh, this poster that said, uh, you know, gone missing. And it was like they had taken the template of, uh, I guess if you lose your dog, most people just go into Google and type like, I lost my dog. And there's some Google Doc template because they all seem to look the same. And, uh, you know, it has little things where you could tear off the bottom and call the number. And, but it was a person's Roomba. Like, I guess the battery ran out in their fence. And the Roomba just went out of the backyard and went down the street or something. And it was like lost Roomba. Like if you find him, please cuddle him. You know, it's just wait. That sounds like it's just a joke. Um, I don't know. There was some. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I, I think that I think it was written in a funny way, but I think the person legit lost the Roomba. Okay. I, <laughs> so, yeah, I do know a lot of people call the Roomba. Like him or her, like they, or at least they have name uh, a name for the Roomba. So interesting. So then I was just uh, to close out, going to talk about various things where people hear about robotics. We already talked about self-driving cars, drones. Um, you know, these are things. But also, there's first robotics. So uh, that I think they have various degrees for middle school and high school students. Yeah. Uh, and these are remote-controlled robots. Because at that level, I, th- I think there's some opportunity for them to perform some autonomous tasks, but um, they're also remote controlled because autonomy is very hard. Uh, and right. then Robot Wars, which I've been watching, which is like, I guess, entertainment TV. And there are some of the systems we talk about, like control systems and stuff, but there isn't much sophistication in the terms of autonomy. Although a couple of the teams do talk about things that they've tried to make automatic. Um, but... There are also, oh, what is the name? The Robot Cup, is it? Where Oh, the, RoboCup. Yeah, where robots play like a version of soccer, right? And they try so to yeah, do it for, autonomously. For people who don't know, the RoboCup, the goal of the RoboCup is to have a fully autonomous um, robot team that can play the World Cup winners in 2050. And uh, it's a pretty audacious goal. Um, but yeah, I mean, they have... They, they tackle the, like every level of the problem has a competition. Like there's a competition for who can build the best like humanoid player, who can build the best like one foot tall player, uh, so on. So like there's a whole competition for who can build the best AI in like a pure virtual sandbox. Uh, yeah, Robo, RoboCup is amazing. And it's an interesting problem, which is if the goal is simply to beat the World Cup team, do you have like you still obviously probably have to obey the World Cup rules, so you can only have like eleven players. But do they have to be shaped like humans? I, you know, I don't, I don't know. Like some of the rules in soccer probably only make sense for humans. Yeah, they're shaped like uh, ankle-destroying tiny robots. <laughs> but even if you don't something ridiculous like that, like it just might be like very short, stout barrels, right? Like maybe that yeah, turns right. out to be particularly optimal. But then now, like, the rules about using your hands or not, like, don't make a lot of sense. So I think the implication is to do it with humanoids. But it's actually a broader problem for just all of robotics. If you're designing a car-assembling robot, it's all about function and very little about form. But if you're building something that's out there with people, you know, form starts to matter a lot more. Yeah, right. It's actually, like, super interesting to read um, articles and other sources on on uh, sort of things which have taken like inspiration from the human form for no reason. Um, like the example they gave, which I don't know if I really agree with, they said like, uh, the drivers, the driver in a car sits on one side of the car. And I guess they were arguing it would be better to have the driver sit in the middle and have two people on either side, like have the car be a little bit wider. Like, I don't know. I thought this kind of weird, but, but their whole thing was like, Oh, the, a human being is asymmetric on the inside because of your heart and other things, right? And, and, and symmetric on the outside. What? Yeah, they were trying to draw an analogy between the asymmetry of the inside of a human and the first designs of the car. And, uh, and I don't know if... Okay. Uh, yeah, that seemed pretty out there. But, but they had a number of other examples too. But I think it's kind of interesting. And I think over time people learn, in the case of something that's purely functional, like a robot you know, a car building robot or something, people eventually get over sort of their own human bias and learn like, oh, you actually don't need something that has an arm, like or right. a human or a human looking hand or car. But if or you're going to have a robot made in your house, 
it needs to open doors and cabinets. And obviously those things are meant for human hands to grasp. That's true. And so then you're kind of forcing the robot to have certain features, which even if you don't otherwise intend, it needs to be sort of human-like height to be able to reach, for instance, tall cabinets, have sort of human-like grippers so that it can manipulate things designed for humans to open. Or you're forced to like retrofit everything in your house for, like it wouldn't be good for both humans and robots. It would be good for either humans or robots unless the robots also look like humans or the humans look like the robots. Yeah, or maybe like the drawer is like a hybrid where it has a little hole that the robot can, you know, like stick something in the hole so that they have leverage or I don't know. But then it's then the adoption problem is hard. Yeah, right. I do think I'm surprised that by now there aren't self-cleaning toilets where like the toilet has just something in it that just, you know, like goes around the bowl and like cleans it. Just seems like it would be something that would break a lot, though. And really like a, a, a toilet is a very simple piece of equipment. Like if you complicate it with adding like a self-cleaning function, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we're uh, off of a software think... topic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know what the I... control system would be for determining when to clean a toilet. Yeah. I've no, I, I mean, actually I do. I just don't want to think about it. Well, it's kind of like a Roomba where if you clean, like the Roomba is not the best at, at the best vacuum. Like it's not better than a human at vacuuming accurately, but it just runs so many times that eventually it works. Okay. Well, that's all I've got for robotics for now. Cool. Yeah. Um, if you have any, if you've done any cool robotics work, um, let us know, post on, on Facebook, um, Facebook seems to be taking over um, in terms of number of people. Um, I'm obviously going to keep posting the show on on all of them, Facebook, Twitter, G+. Uh, and now LinkedIn. A few people asked me to post on LinkedIn, so I've done that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, if, if, you, if, you, uh, if you have a, you know, a toilet cleaning robot that you want to show everyone, uh, uh, post it on Facebook and uh, we could talk about it. All right. Well, until next time. Catch you guys later. Intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.